Now, why would humans and animals take greater risks in adolescence? And why would they love novelty? For what evolutionary purpose? Because you see, there's an important thing here. If you see it in animals and you see it in humans, then you know you have some evolutionary adaptation. So our job in DNAV and in, is to think about, okay, well, what would be the purpose? Why would a human adolescent or an animal adolescent, for that matter, take more risks? Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome to this episode of Better Thinking. Today's guest is Louise Hayes. She's the co-creator of a model called DNAV, which is really a developmental model of ACT for young people. She's got such great insight. She's an incredible human being. Not only has she been an author of some great books, but a trainer, humanitarian. She's got some some fantastic insights into working with young people and and using ACT in in a process-based way. I'm sure you're going to absolutely love this episode. Please, if you can help me out, share this episode. Go out and subscribe to to this podcast. And if you can, give us give us a review if you enjoy what we're doing. And looking forward to making many more episodes. You know, this year and you know, ongoing. Thanks. Louise Hayes, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for for coming along to discuss all of your expertise and knowledge, particularly with working with young people. It's something that you know a lot of psychologists and you know mums and dads around around the world struggle with all the time. And to have someone so specialised in the field as yourself is, is is a great pleasure. So thank you for coming onto the show. Thanks for asking me, Nesh. I'm happy to be here. Louise, so many people know you for for all of your work as a you know clinical psychologist, author, trainer, even humanitarian. But I was thinking before we jump into all of that work that you do, maybe I can find out a little bit about about you and how you got into into this work because I think it's always fascinating to to find out a little bit more of the story in the background. Well, yeah, that's interesting. Um, a little bit more about me. Well, um, <laughs> uh, um. Maybe it's easier if I start with how I got into this work. Uh, Yeah. um, Psychology is my second career. So I used to be a retail buyer, which had nothing to do with psychology at all. Um, But uh, after I had children, I became really interested in um, humans and development. And I started studying and I, um, I was a school dropout kind of. So I left school when I was 13 and, um, ended up working my way up the corporate ladder and becoming a retail buyer. But then when I had children, I um, became interested in humans and human behaviour and I had the opportunity to go to university for the first time. So I went to university with two small children Um, and my youngest child was one year old and I went to university uh, with the two small kids and I allowed myself to go to classes for two days a week and I only opened the books after they were in bed at night. And so that was more of a um, pragmatic decision, that one. I tried studying with little kids around and it was just impossible. So I made a decision that I would only study in the evening. So I studied um, six nights a week and um, went to classes two days a week with small children and somehow ended up getting a PhD. 
Um, and the reason that I work with teenagers is that, <laughs> I often tell this in workshops, when I was doing my clinical training, I thought working with teenagers would be easier than working with adults. Um, and my PhD was on adolescent um, parenting adolescents. And I just thought, oh, well, that'll be easy to work with in the clinic. And anyway, that was how that was the decision and how it happened. It wasn't really that well thought out. That's how it happened. <laughs> so, That's an incredible journey to be uh, going back uh, or, or starting uni after. Obviously not a, a great start to academics and, and, and then doing that with two kids and, and uh, you know, putting huge amounts of hours after hours, really, um, you know, wow, it's very, very inspiring. Well, um, yeah, I don't know how quite how it happened. I mean, I just started off, I was going to do a degree, an undergraduate degree, but somehow ended up doing that and then an honours year and then a master's and then a PhD because I enjoyed it. But it, I remember that when I finished and thinking, oh, now I can read a novel. <laughs> <laughs> And it sounds like things haven't slowed down either. You know, just before we started our, our, our chat, you were saying how you've been in uh, uh, meetings uh, since, since the morning and it hasn't stopped at all. You haven't had a break. So, you know, we're, we're now at midday. So um, you're, you're, you're still go, go, go. That's part of your, part of your fabric. Oh, I think I do like to work. <laughs> you know, I do have some downtime. I do have downtime, but I do like to work. And, you know, I, I'm just lucky enough. Psychology is a wonderful career. And sometimes people say to me, do you recommend it? And it's hard work going through all the academic stuff. But once you're qualified as a psychologist, there's so many variations you can do. So you're right. I do training and I do supervision and I do clinical work and I do writing and um, treatment development, therapy development. So it's just such a big field. It's really, it's a, just a pleasure. Great job, great career. And tell us a little bit about. Obviously, you started working with teenagers, and and uh, I, I imagine your practice has evolved over, over over time to something that is probably more familiar to to many in the the act world, and and, and obviously in the work that you've been doing of, of late with the DNA um, V type of work can you tell us a little bit about how you know therapy has changed for for you and and obviously you know yourself and joe putting putting together a, a different sort of concept or a different framework of working with young people giving them a different language to to, to think about in, in their own mental well-being sure um nesh i was lucky enough to be um most of my clinical training was came from a behavior analysis approach um and so i Really, when I decided to do my clinical training, I was really passionate about helping children. And um, so I went to a university that at that time had a, a big focus on a parenting clinic and a child clinic. And so I went there with a real interest and was I was really lucky that having a background in behaviour analysis has been probably the most useful clinical tool I have. Um, and so, um, because we all have behaviour. <laughs> And so having that BA background has been the most useful tool I have. And then I was trained in some CBT. And while I was still um, in that kind of area of behaviour analysis and parent training and parent management and child behaviour management, um, people started talking about this thing called ACT. Um, and that was in 2003. People started, I started to hear about that. And the reason that 
people that I knew were talking about it was because ACT came from behaviour analysis. Steve was a behaviour analyst, so Steve Hayes. And so ACT came from um, ABA, Applied Behaviour Analysis. And so people in the field that I was working in were talking about it. And so everybody was talking about this, this new thing. And uh, I was lucky enough to be curious enough to go along and uh, see Steve Hayes in, I think it was 2003 or 2004, um, do a workshop on ACT. And the thing that changed, and it, it totally changed my career direction. But the reason it changed my career direction is that I saw that, something that I hadn't seen before and that is I saw a professional with um, lots of publications lots of credibility I'm talking about Steve Hayes um, one of the most cited um, researchers that we have in psychology and I saw this presenter with data and geeking out on theory and data and at the same time I saw something I hadn't seen which was somebody showing their human side so um, saying things like uh, that he had panic disorder and anxiety and talking about that, that as a way of learning the, um, not just the therapy but the human part of the work that we do was an eye-opener to me. So I began this podcast by saying I left school at well, 13 or 14, depending on when the official leaving deadline is. <laughs> but uh, prior to that, that would have been a deep, dark secret that I never would have told anybody because it had so much shame around it. It's profound, um, isn't it? Because I, I, I yeah. felt something very similar when I first met, you know, the, 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 this idea of, of ACT, that we could actually be vulnerable and that that was part of the process, that they, we don't have to hide. But to, for it to be modelled was what was so powerful because, you know, for some reason, you know, we're all kind of hiding behind something, you know, that... that um, you know, external world. So, you know, I think something very similar draws us together. Yeah, well, I mean, my training at that time, uh, or my understanding of the way my clinical training was, and young, fresh psychologists these days don't really see this, but back then, my um, training was that if your personal um, experiences came into the room, that was not a good thing that you had to keep yourself separate. And um, for example, I was working with teenagers and I was a, an early school leaver. So it, it makes sense that your own, my own experiences of being a school leaver would come into the room when I'm thinking about the teenagers that I work with. But my training was that if that happened, that was not a good thing. And so we were taught to kind of stuff it away and put it away and leave it outside and just be the consummate professional, the expert in the room. Um, and so uh, seeing ACT, um, allowed me to let go of that in a way that completely changed my therapy, changed my therapeutic approach and changed my ability to help people. I am firmly believe it changed my ability to connect with young people and help them. And lots of people will say that. Do, 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 do you think that the way that you've approached your therapy has meant that you, you're able to do more meaningful work, you're able to do deeper work, kind of assist clients in seeing something more uh, by virtue of, of, of that. What, what is it that it allows for? Because I, I know we as psychologists tend to feel like, you know, we're, we are honing our practice, we're getting better over time, but what, what do you think it allows us to do? Well, I think... Uh, uh, 
ACT for me does a couple of things. And I know this happens to some other people who do ACT too. So um, there's a couple of things. So one of the things is it has, firstly, it has an assumption that um, what we are trying to do is not focused on symptom reduction, but that what we are trying to do instead is help a client get directed towards life. So the easiest way is for me to give you an example to make sense. If somebody comes in and they have anxiety, then the, um, the gold standard treatment for anxiety would be exposure, for example. Um, then what we might do um, in ACT is do the exposure for the purposes of helping them get connected to the thing that they care about. So an easy example might be someone who has social anxiety um, we would not do exposure for them to continually put themselves in a social situation and then monitor their symptoms going down. Instead, we would put them in a social situation because there's a value in that and ask them to, to focus on and connect with the thing that they care about inside that. And then success in that way would be actually being able to socialise in a way that you want to. And that might be with or without anxiety. So we're not trying to get the symptoms to go down. But what we do find is when you, get, when you do it because you care about it, symptoms invariably go down. But that's not our focus. Our focus is how do I help you do what you care about? And if the so symptoms don't was, go down, I'm assuming it's still a, uh, it's still a, a, a useful um, uh, outcome because you're still able to go out and socialise and do those things that matter, even if yes. that discomfort is still there. Well, that's right. Well, what we know from the data is, it's, and anxiety is a good example for this, because, you know, yes, the symptoms do go down, but not every single time. Mm. So if you go and if you have social anxiety, for example, um, and you go and do what you care about, you'll be very anxious in the beginning. Um, and then, and, but you're doing what you care about. So there's a reinforcer in there. It becomes a reinforcing behaviour. And then you might do it four or five times and your anxiety slowly goes down and you think, yay, I've got this, I know this. I've clicked it, I've cured. But then the next time you go and do it and your anxiety goes up again, just because that's the way anxiety is. So we help people do what they care about and your anxiety might be there or it might not be there. But the focus of life is actually doing what we care about. And life has so much difficulty in it, not just difficulty that needs to be fixed. Um, but there is so much value in the difficulty as well. And that can sometimes be hard to see. But, you know, so I work with um, young children and teenagers a lot. I work with adults too. Um, but it, I can remember even like a 12-year-old boy when I said to him, you know, if I could make the sadness go away, what would that mean? And even a, 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 someone as young as that is able to say, well, then I wouldn't be sad if my friend was hurt. Or then I wouldn't be sad if my granny dies, you know. So there is a lot of value in the stuff that we struggle with. And people who have gone on um, and struggled with something and then created meaning through it, um, they will say that that struggle helped them create meaning and helped them be stronger or bigger or, or more connected to the things that they care about. So inside the suffering is something important and our job is to understand what that is and why that is important one of the things that i often um talk to people about is how there is no struggling and no suffering inside something you don't care about 
So, Nesh, tell me, do you have any interest in, say, like cake decorating, for example? Just picking something off the top of my head. Oh, well, that, uh, I would say yes, because my mother did a lot of de uh, cake decorating. I'm very fond of my mother, but um, I, let's, let, let's pick, um, I don't know, um, fitting shoes or something. <laughs> okay, fitting shoes, right. So do you have any interest in fitting shoes? No, no, it's not something of mine. So um, if you get to the end of your days and you've never had a chance to fit shoes, how much pain and struggle will there be in that? Yeah, I, I very comfortably say, in actual fact, naught, zero. Zero. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. But there are many, many things that if I said, if you get to the end of your days and you haven't done them, you'll go, oh, that would be something I've really missed out on. Mm. So we need to find a way to understand the suffering. And when I work with young people, and I work with lots of young people, a lot of their suffering is no one gets me. No one is there for me. I don't have any friends that I can see who um, look at me and accept me for who I am. I have to put on the selfie persona, right? And if you're in that place, then that suffering is really important because right? that's the things we need. We're humans as a group species. We need other people. We need to be understood. We need to feel that we can be safe and people get us without having to put on a mask. And our job is to help people understand that, not to help them put the mask on and to find a way to be themselves and to connect with people. And young people are really struggling, really struggling. What is it about the world as it is today that makes young people struggle so much? Is, are we still talking about the same struggles as we did previously uh, and i mean previously i mean recent you know years 20 years 30 years 50 years uh, or or are, are we actually experiencing unique struggles well data is suggesting increases in struggle so the data is suggesting that young people are more distressed than they have been before um what is it today well i think it's multiple things so um uh, it's multiple things today. So, uh, for example, young people are exposed to more uh, input, if you like. So when we talk about DNAV, it's a developmental model of act. So I'm going to use that language to kind of look at what's going on today. So the A stands for advisor, which is just a word we use to describe self-talk or um, the behaviour of uh, using language to navigate the world more technically, right? The process of using language, verbal behaviour. And so um, simply we might say to young people, talking to yourself or thinking and then telling yourself what to do. <clears throat> so if you look at the way that that behaviour class is trained, it's through being spoken to and learning to speak for yourself. Um, and it's all through the books you read and the television you watch and the things that you're exposed to. Well, in the last, you know, 30 years, there's been an explosion in 24-hour-a-day, um, seven-day-a-week media feeds and young people and the way that they are exposed to language has increased dramatically. So they're constantly um, exposed to um, uh, social inputs that feed the behaviour that we call your advisor. You know, I should rules like I should be like this and I should be like that and other people are like this and other people are like that through... Uh, not just social media, but also the news and the televisions that are on in houses all the time and the 
uh, radio that's always on in the car. And I'm not saying any of those things are bad, but there is pretty much a constant stream of information feeding people's um, language. And that also gives us a, the capacity to constantly compare ourselves um, and to constantly think about our, our feared future. So that behaviour we call your advisor is telling yourself what to do and using language to work out what you should do. So there's an increase in stress in that area, an increase in overthinking, an increase in worry about what my future will be, am I as good as other people, social comparison, all of those things, it's definitely increased. And Google's an infinite source of, you know, reviews. If you go and just try and buy yourself a computer and you start searching you know, a particular computer, there's a thousand reviews that look at every technical aspect and, you know, compare one computer against another. And by the time you've read a few, you're never sure what to do. You know, you're, you're more confused than you ever and you feel more stressed because you can't get your head around every technical detail and of which previously you would have had no idea you would have previously just walked into a shop and you would have asked the shopkeeper and they would have told you or you would have asked your one trusty friend who knew computers and whatever they said you'd go with but now you know I have to be a you know an IT technician and you know a professional shoe developer of you know what compound is in the sole or something so I don't go out and sprain my ankle or something right everything has just got you know an infinite number of sources of information so it becomes stressful exactly exactly nish um and that's what we talk about this behavior so dnav is classes of behavior discover and notice advisor and behavior they've got class loose classes of behavior and the advisor is the behavior of using um your ability to use language or verbal behavior to predict what's going to happen mm -hmm. so you buying a computer is a great example instead of um, um just buying it and finding out what it's like we're going to do all of the resourcing and problem solving and asking, researching and reviews and everything. Now, if you contrast that with the behavior that we call the discoverer, the discoverer is the trial and error behavior. Well, sometimes I say to young people, it's the experience of life. It's trying things out to see what happens. And your example is brilliant because a hundred years ago, if you had to buy a computer, you would go and try it. You know, you'd walk in and try it and see what it's like and go, oh, I like this. Maybe you might ask one friend or one shopkeeper, and then you try. And that behaviour that we call the discoverer is the ability to try things out through experience and, and find out for you what works for you. Mm, the doer. Yeah, doer is sometimes another way to call it, yep. And now it's not, I need to stress that it's not just, um, it also has a verbal component too. Sure. Um, because trying to make a decision, verbal behaviour is everywhere. So language and verbal behaviour or thinking, whatever you want to call it, is kind of everywhere. Yes. But yeah. Trying it through experience might be, you know, and, and that sometimes I used to use that Mac versus PC example. You know, <laughs> if you're going to try and decide whether you're a Mac or a PC person, um, do you decide based on whether you like the Mac or PC, which would be the discoverer piece, or do you decide based on what other people tell you you should use, which would be the advisor piece? Um, that's a good example. And then they conflict because you want to uh, do with a, with a Mac and then you look at the price and uh, the advisor says, I'm not sure if that's so wise. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. Too, too big a go at Mac. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, and so you asked me um, if young people are more stressed. So the data suggests, yes, they are. Um, and... Um, and there's a whole host of reasons. It's not just that extra information load. 
it's all a whole host of uncertainty that um, we are all experiencing at this point in time. We are at a, we are, it seems like we are at a paradigm shift um, in terms of humanity. We're at a paradigm shift and there are things that were perhaps um, the accepted norm before and not anymore. And, you know, I don't have too many young people who walk into my office who don't talk about climate change. They're concerned about it and um, the political order is changing and, you know, there's a whole, whole range of things that are changing and uh, uncertain futures have always been an issue that young people have to face. But, you know, I also have lots of faith too because, you know, uh, as we're talking this week, Greta Thunberg has been named the Time Person of the Year for 2019 and the subtitle on the cover of Time is The Power of Youth. So part of the reason, so when we talk about ACT, you know, and we talk about just before we were talking about people suffering and how we might do something with someone who has social anxiety and we help them connect with what they value. Well, we used to do the same thing when we're talking about um, DNAV, which is a developmental model of ACT. So we look at, yes, your advisor is going to tell you that the world is terrible and that it can't be helped, but we actually know that there are things that, that you can do. And so we we actively think about what you care about and what you want to do and what you value and also using that discover piece to think about what action can you take? Um, what, can, what things can we do? And there are always things that we can do. But your advisor is always going to tell you it's terrible. <laughs> and, it's, it's, and it's worse. It's, you know, and we need to use that information. We need to use that information. But young people, young people are the hope that we need. Mm. They have the power to change the world, and they can teach us a lot. And and and, and to dare to try. I mean, the, mm. the the advisor might say, "Oh, I'm not quite sure," or it's going to go terribly wrong. But we might have that, you know, discoverer, which, which which at least dips its toe to get a little bit of feedback to try and understand it, to 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 taste it, so to speak. You know, rather than just take the advisor's, um, you know, side or, or go along Prediction. with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so and, and if you look at, I mean, that discoverer piece, it's not just a word that we actually made up. Um, it, it's built on evolutionary science. And so a lot of DNAV, we used um, the evolutionary science to think about development and what development actually means from a human group species perspective. Um, and if you look at across the species, the key characteristics across the species in adolescence are risk-taking, love of novelty, sensation-seeking, and changes in family and peer relationships. Right? So if you look across the species, you will see, um, for example, uh, mice will take a greater risk in an adolescent period. Um, <clears throat> and there's a cool study of a researcher called Laviola who took three groups of mice and put them in a maze, and there was an adolescent, uh, adolescent mice, adult mice, and children mice We'll use that common language. And the maze had a cliff wall. And the adult mice and the child mice stayed well away from the cliff wall. But the adolescent mice walked right along the edge of the cliff wall. Right? And so there's lots of studies showing that. In Now, why would humans and animals take greater risks in adolescence? And why would they love novelty? For what evolutionary purpose? Because you see, there's an important thing here. If you see it in animals and you see it in humans, then you know you have some evolutionary adaptation. So our job in DNAV and in, is to think about, okay, well, what would be the purpose? Why would a human adolescent or an animal adolescent, for that matter, take more risks? 
um, why do you think we would take more risks? Gosh, that's a really good question. I mean, I, I can probably make a story up or something like that, but um, I'm, I'm only guessing. I'm only guessing. I, uh, that's all right, I can tell you. There's a couple of purposes. Like in animals, it's to leave the nest and to go out and reproduce. Right? Yeah, You've got to take a risk yes, to leave yes. the nest, right? And so for humans, it's a similar kind of thing. It's from a biological perspective, it's to leave um, the family home and to go out and become active as a biological species, sexually active, as well as develop relationships. But there's also a cultural and a behavioural part of evolution. It's not just biology. And so from a cultural and behavioural part, one of the, some of the purposes of risk-taking and sensation-seeking and love of novelty is that you get to test yourself out and you get to practice being adult doing adult behaviors because one day you're going to be an adult so you're going to so adolescents they'll practice um exploring new things that their parents don't do and and building bigger repertoires of behavior so that one day they get to um help society and also become an adult and take on independent roles so we actually need young people who say let's look at this differently Let's look through a new way. I, I, I love that as well in terms of uh, the understanding around expanding one's repertoire of behaviour and, and, and taking feedback from that or, or starting to notice, you know, what occurs in that because otherwise we're locked into one, one path, which is what our parents tell us rather than evolution, evolving, you know, going against the status quo and, 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 and seeing what could be discovered. I mean, that's, that, that's what we want from our young people. That's why we want, you know, whether it be maybe um, uh, a protest or, you know, placards going up or strikes or whatever it might be, young people often, you know, push the boundaries on. They've, they've got something to say and, and often we don't listen to them because we say, oh, you know, that's, they're just young people. What do they know? Um, rather than saying, well, they're young people, so we should probably you know, wisely at least hear them out and see what they have to say because they're, they're the ones pushing, pushing some of the boundaries that we, we've closed our minds off to. Yeah, well, there's an interesting thing that happens here, Nish, is um, uh, young people across history have always pushed the boundaries. Uh, like the major changes have often happened, not always, but often happen through young people pushing the boundaries. You know, look at the 60s movement, for example. Um, you know, young people have always pushed the boundaries and even going back to the times of, you know, Socrates and places, you know, back, way back in ancient times when they talk about young people being... Hong Kong um, days. Yeah, disrespectful. And yeah, so the young people have always pushed the boundaries. And if you look from an evolutionary perspective, um, young people pushing the boundaries is often offset by older people being wise. So if you look um, like before we had modern culture um, from an evolutionary perspective and think about what those roles were, young people would try new things out. And older people were the carriers of knowledge that they transmitted through oral transmission. So you have this kind of balance between an older person having wise knowledge and knowing things and a younger person trying new things. And you put that tension in and you get stronger, strong, stronger groups. Um, so, um, and, and what we need that tension is what mm. I'm saying. We need that tension. We need the tension between the uh, old, older people having wise knowledge and younger people um, pushing the boundaries and that helps us grow as a species. So you see, working with adolescents is really good fun. 
Absolutely. I was, uh, who was I? I? I did a podcast recently, an episode um, uh, talking about parenting and, and the importance of uh, both mothers and fathers and the tension between their styles. And, and, and that's that same sort of thing between young people and, and, and older people, the, the, the great importance of the tension. You know, they're not opposing each other. In actual fact, they're, they're complementing each other. That, that's how you make better groups or that's how you kind of can help with raising children as well with, with, with this tension. You know, there, there, there needs to be a certain amount of tension, sometimes a bit more slack, other times a bit more uh, firm tension. You know, it, it, it's healthy. It's a healthy space and that's what we're trying to, to I suppose, make, make space for, make room for or appreciate and understand. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. The noticer. Can you say? Can you talk a little bit about sure. the noticer? We haven't touched on that quite quite yet. Is yeah. in as much so, detail. Um, <clears throat> so, um, uh, the the noticer is um, uh, the noticer is a class of behaviour that. Let, let me just describe it like it would to a young person. Yes, yes. Um, yes. Nish, uh, Nish, what colour is my hair? Just you can use kid words. It's fine. Blonde, I'd say. Right, okay, okay. And Nesh, I noticed that you've got lots of pictures on the back wall there. Right? Yes. Right, so that's noticing, okay? That's noticing. And so, Nesh, can you feel the chair that you're sitting in? I can, I can. Right, okay, that's noticing, right? And so um, it doesn't have to be technical. Uh, I want to, that's the point I'm trying to make here. And so the noticer is a process, it's a behaviour class, or we call them groups of behaviours or whatever words you want to use. Um, and it's the behaviour of being aware of what is, on, what is going on inside you and what is going on outside you. And um, as we grow, learning how to choose how we respond instead of being reactive. So from the minute we are born, we are all noticers. You know, anyone who's held a newborn baby will know that they... You have, you, have, you have children. Do you remember yes. your newborn baby? And what did your newborn baby do the minute that they're born with their eyes? Mm. What do they do? They're seeking out the eyes of someone else. And interestingly, mum and dad do exactly the same. They, they look straight back at the, their little baby and they, they connect. They notice each other and they often stare at each other. You know, yep. It's a beautiful moment. Yeah, it is. And it goes on from the minute we're born. We're looking for the eyes of other people. So noticing is a really important um, group of behaviours. And we um, don't just notice through eyes, we also notice through our bodies. And so what we're talking about here is very much an embodied sense. And we start this work working with children and then move up to adolescents and adults. So it's very much an embodied sense. Um, as we get older, we become more cognitive. Um, but when we're younger, it's very much an embodied sense of being in the world. Um, and we really want to use that um, information and we really want to help young people be able to be inside their bodies and be aware of what's going on in their bodies and being able to have the messages in their body and, and to um, understand what that message is and to not make the message the enemy. You know, if you're angry, if you're sad, the message is not the enemy. The message tells you something and that something needs to be listened to. And we also need to learn as we become children and then adolescents, our job over that period is to learn how do I manage, what do I do with this message? You know, we don't, sometimes we need to react to it. Sometimes we need to allow it to come and go. Um, and we want to help people choose that. You know, anger is not a bad thing. 
Anger says there's something wrong. I don't feel safe. I'm not being looked after or someone threatens me. Anger is not the problem. It's understanding what to do with that. And so um, we do have young people who struggle with what's going on inside them, who really don't know how to, how to use these messages and make the message the enemy. Mm. And as soon as you do that, you shut down your ability to be a whole human. Um, and so we do want to help people do that. And we include mindfulness exercises and, you know, some of those more formal things. But I think the really important thing is how do you be um, a whole person, not just a thinking person, but a person who has a body who experiences things? And how do you choose what to do with that? That's what being an artist is actually about. I love that phrase, the, the, the message is not the enemy, particularly the, the word the message because uh, it, it, it insinuates and offers that's what it is, you know, so your heart racing is not the enemy, you know, but we, we don't call it your heart racing or we, don't, we certainly don't call it anxiety. I like, I like the use of, you know, that's the message. What's the message telling you? That, that's yeah. beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, it is really important to help young people know that all this stuff is messages. And, you know, mm. the messages come from, like, you're standing too close to me and I'm, like, feeling a bit weird and going a bit this way. Yeah, we get, we're getting this information in constantly. And we need to know how to use it. And if we can help people do that, they'll, they'll, they will struggle less with life. Like we know from the research, Joe Chiroki, my co-author, we know from his research that young people who can do, who have improved noticing skills, um, they, they, they get better academic performance and they have improved relationships and they have lower stress levels. So we know that there's messages inside us and if we keep trying to push them away and fight with them and control them and shut them down, we become more stressed. And that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Is there ways that we can, for those listening, help younger people, you know, start thinking about, you know, noticing more, you know, whether it be through conversation or particular exercises or anything to read that, that, that helps us with trying to be a better noticer, you know, is it about holding more intrigue or curiosity? What, what are we, what are we trying to do there? Well, um, we want to build up, build the skills up to what we call flexible noticing. And so, yes, there are exercises that people can do and things that people can read. And I can give a plug. They can go to Thriving Adolescent and look up some of the animations that are on that website, thrivingadolescent.com, our website. Um, they can look up that website and they'll see some things to read and some things to watch to help thinking about what those skills are. Um, and if you're a professional listening, um, course i can have to give a plug for our book the thriving adolescent and our new book coming out next year um, which will be your life your way which is a book for teenagers helping them use um, this thing that we call dnav which is a developmental approach to act so yes there are things you can do but let me tell you outside the plug there are practical things like <coughs> um uh so one thing that i sometimes do with a with a young person uh, um and let me just show you as an example is, for example, a young person who is stressed and overwhelmed um, and being aware of their body, they might find that they're sitting in the, in the chair with their shoulders crunched and they're all crunched down and, you know, really stressed with hands folded and lots of tension in their body. So just asking them to shift their body to a place where they're just sitting up and they're noticing their shoulders back and just being aware of those two positions can be 
a simple way to say this is what noticing means and tell me the difference between what it's like to be when you sit like this versus what it's like when you sit just like that and slow your breath. I can just, let's just notice the difference between those two. So we want to practice being able to do some of those things. And of course, we do extend into formal mindfulness um, meditation and, and some of those things if young people want to, but it doesn't have to be that. Mm. You know, and there are, there are key skills that we know. Being able to, um, for example, just be aware of your body and take in what's happening at the moment and say, oh, I've got butterflies in my stomach. I think I'm really nervous. Just being able to do that, the data shows, it improves your ability to manage it. Right. So, in, so just being able to say, oh, I've got butterflies in my stomach, I feel like, and then being able to add words, like, I think that means I'm nervous, right? To be able to link those three, the sensation and the label, you know, Joseph Cherokee's research shows it's linked to a whole range of improved outcomes. And that makes sense because we're language creatures. So once we have words on board, being able to add words to something like our body helps us make sense of our body and then suddenly the message is not the enemy but something to be understood yeah and if we don't know what it is it could be scary the unknown can be scary rather than saying i i I have some familiarity with it i I understand what this is rather than i don't know what it is it's uncomfortable and if i don't know what it is it's uncomfortable i better get away from it yeah that's exactly right that's exactly right and you see it this in um developmental um, struggles that young people have, like uh, um, uh, young people who who can't name how they feel or who have difficulties with feelings. You see that. Um, um, So so there's those kind of things as well, as being aware of what goes on inside your body. But there's a really important thing here as well. Just let, let me add one more thing. And that is being willing to have what is inside you in the service of doing what you care about. Because here's the click, here's the crunch thing, right? You're not going to be anxious about learning how to fit shoes because you don't care about being a shoe fitter, right? So if I said to you, come Nish, right now we're going to have a lesson on how to fit shoes. What's your level of nervousness around that? Or anxiety or zero? Zero, not. Right, right. If I said, Nish, I want you to go and practice giving a talk to 500 people. What's your level of anxiety around that? It's going to be high. Very high. If you care about it, of course. So um, that's the thing, is the things we care about most of the things we feel inside us are connected to things we care about. And then obviously the willingness, you know, only only really needs to come in if if it's important. The willingness, if it's if it's not there, well, if it's not important, we might not be willing to do it either because it could be boredom that I'm avoiding because I'm not not interested in fitting shoes because I don't care about it. But uh, it exactly doesn't right. cause any any tension in my body other than, you know, maybe I want to use my my, my time more wisely. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So that's the that's a really important thing when you think about notices. Is the stuff you're going to notice inside you that's going to give you the most, um, um, that's going to give you difficulty is, is going to be connected to things you care about. It's also uh, talking about willingness and familiarity. Uh, I know that um, uh, my eldest daughter is a little bit more timid and uh, so she can obviously be a little bit more cautious around things. And I know whenever we find a bug or notice a bug, see a bug, I always take that extra time to, you know, pick up a Christmas beetle or, you know, if it's a caterpillar, you know, I always pick it up so we can examine 
the 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 insect or the caterpillar and we look at you know the little hairs that are on it and you know the colors and so on and and this intrigue and familiar, familiarity and obviously the fact that dad's holding holding it you can see in very short period of time uh, she's much more comfortable um, and in mm. some sometimes is willing to sit with her nerves and and, and apprehension but might want to still touch the the you know, the caterpillar or whatever it might be. So there's this kind of interesting tension between uh, this desire, but the fear, and then the willingness of, of sitting with that discomfort, which I'm assuming is probably going to be, you know, all those classic uh, experiences like, you know, muscle tension, maybe heart racing, of course. you know, of course. so on and so forth. But, but, but it's that noticing that, that that's actually part of that the, the moderating effect i suppose yeah absolutely and what you're describing nish is a really beautiful example really sweet example um and it also connects us to uh, with dnav we talk about these four classes of behavior discover and notice advisor and values but they're surrounded in the, the visual model that we show they're surrounded by two contextual factors one is social context and the other one is self as context and so what you're describing right there is the social context. And inside that social context, we look at evolutionary behaviours that we humans need, such as attachment, and, and others to keep us safe and to help us grow our noticer for, or grow our discoverer or build value, right? So in that little moment where you're describing with your little girl, there's the attachment and the social context in which you're using your noticing skills to this bug by having this little bug in your hand and saying this bug is okay and look at it you're using your flexible noticing skills to scaffold her and help her build hers because if dad's got a little bug in his hand and it's safe then she knows oh it's okay safe for dad's going to be safe for me and in that mo moment you're modeling that what how how she can use her bodily experiences you're modeling notice skills so that's why the social we call it social view but technically it's social context and that's why that social context of attachment and nurturing and safety and support is critical in understanding how to work with young people um, and is an important um, all-encompassing factor for um, in DNAV. There is no working with a young person without their social context. And the safety nice element, if we talk about the social context as being safety in that, in, in, in that scenario, obviously along with some other things, but safety allows her to sit with that for longer than she might if she was by herself. If she was by herself, she'd probably run away to seek yeah. safety before going back to have a look at it. Yep, exactly, exactly. And so um, you're uh, a trusted informant of the world. And so if dad thinks this is safe, then I'm going to think this is safe. And that's how we grow our noticing skills. Mm. Right? We, we, we grow all our skills like that. But that's how we, you know, we're, we're the social imitators, you know. Um, and that's, and the, that's the thing that humans have. Yeah, yeah. And then we, and then we inject that into the um, complex world of, of the playground, uh, which, yeah. you know, isn't so safe at times or you know or sometimes the family home isn't so so safe and and you know there are there are all sorts of things that can get in the way that that make it harder to develop those uh, not develop but uh, to practice those yeah. those skills yeah well make it hard to be flexible with those skills flexible because yeah. we're always noticing but it's whether we can do it flexibly 
So uh, the difference is, let's, the difference, I'll give you a course uh, difference, is the difference is between like someone who's able to have anger and choose what they do with it and respond in a way that helps them or someone who has anger and lashes out. So we would say one is reactive and the other one is choosing how you respond. Now, anger, so just use the anger as an example. Uh, having anger and then choosing how to do that, to how to use that anger in a way that connects with what you care about and helps you with all of the things that you want to do is, is okay. Anger is not a bad emotion. But having anger as a response and then being reactive to it, um, it doesn't do that. So, so um, that's... Um, and and the, the, the flexibility in that as well uh, comes back to that functional analysis that sometimes using anger uh, can in actual fact uh, or responding to anger in a way that serves you can be quite functional. You know, the, the anger in and of itself is innate. Um, well, not quite innate in some sense either, but it, it, it's a So it is. It's, it's a, a core human behaviour. Yeah. It's yeah, a core yeah, human yeah. motion. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then we kind of get to decide what we do with that if, if, if we've got that flexibility or if we've been practising that. I mean, if we look at the, the, um, the idea of um, young uh, persons being angry with the state of the climate and what, what, what's going on and they're angry about it, you know, people might say, well, you shouldn't be going out and, and uh, missing school. But, uh, you know, big protest Australia-wide, you know, get, gets uh, politicians to listen and to, to, to maybe um, you know, consider that and put that on the agenda as an example, even though older people might, might go and say, that's foolish, don't go out and, and, and uh, you know, miss school, school is everything, academia, so on and so forth. I'm, I'm just kind of trying to put a, an example together. Yeah. Well, it's, it's kind of also important to distinguish anger from passion, you know. Yes, 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 thank yes, you. Yes, you're right. Yes, you're right. I mean, anger is a core, is a, a natural human behaviour. Can anger be connected with with with, with passion too? Anger is an anger is an emotion that says I care about something. Mm, mm. What I care about is being safe and pushing you away, or whether I care about changing the world. Anger is an emotion that says I care about something. Mm. Um, but you know, we can't just talk about behaviours isolated from context. So. Um, when I say, you know, anger is a behaviour that says I care about something, over time, my learning history influences how I use that. And so you will end up with people who are angry all the time because that's a behaviour they've used all the time. And then it changes and it becomes something different. Then it's no longer just anger is a behaviour that says, you know, I don't feel safe. And then it becomes also anger is a behaviour that I use a lot, right, um, and that I've got a well-learned repertoire and I can be angry just like that. So. Um, we can't just take the behaviour and talk about it without a context. But that's what a functional assessment is about. Mm-hmm. But certainly we don't want to take our behaviour like, or an emotion like anger and say it's bad. Yeah, 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 yeah. Are boys more prone to, to not prone, um, are boys more likely to, to, to experience anger? Do you, do, do you know? I, um, I don't. I'd, I'd have to look back at the data. I'd have to look back at the data. Mm. Um, my understanding is that men in general, but I'm, I'm talking, you know, uh, well, older age are more likely to be violent, but violence and anger are two different things. Maybe, you know, women 
display anger in a different way. They, they, they have a better noticer or something. I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm just kind of. I don't want to get outside the data because there are cultural things in there. So we're talking about the social, the social context. Yes. And so what you're describing is a learning history and a social context. So when, unless I go back and look at the data, um, and I'm trying to recall Ricard Tremblay's longitudinal studies from Canada, but I, I, can't, I'm not gonna, I can't pull the data out of my head quickly. But, so but I'm not going to comment. Yeah. And look, at the, I, I, I think that's, that, that's so uh, wise because, I mean, even the thought of this idea of, you know, you know, popping out a question of men and women as though the context of the whole of the world, it's a ridiculous question in actual fact when, when there's so many factors that, you know, could be from one town to the next town, one culture to another culture. It doesn't actually make sense to even ask those sorts of questions. But, uh, you know, th- thank you for that response. It's an amazing notice. <laughs> no worries. Well, behaviour in context is what ACT is all about. So we actually care about behaviour in context. <clears throat> so that's um that's fine, no problems at all. Um, the last circle you were talking about was the I think you said selfless context. Self, self yeah. so, so in DNAV we call it self view as self. a way of just have self view, just as a way of having a language that is easier for young people to kind of understand and make sense and not get caught up in that selfless context kind of tricky language. Sure. Um, and that is um that is the being able. It's the perspective of. It's a perspective, actually. It's a, being able to take perspective, perspective that inside me is a noticer and I also have an advisor and I also have the ability to discover and I also have values and things that I care about. And they're all a part of me and they change. So um, uh, if you take the behaviour of, let's say, take the behaviour of noticing sadness, for example, that's a behaviour that you have and the sadness that you have now is not the same as the sadness you had 20 years ago or the sadness you'll have in 20 years' time. Um, And it's being able to take the perspective that all of these behaviours are part of us and they are constantly changing. So that when you have a thought like, I'm a loser, we want to know that we want to help young people know that's a part of you. Um, and And it changes. You know, some parts feel like they say the same, but they change. Um, so self-view or self as context is starting to get a perspective that um, your discover and notice advisor and value are all part of you. And our job is to step back and see the whole lot and see how do we want to change this one? What might we want to grow here? What might we want to be stronger at with our advisor how much more flexible might you want to get with your advisor and understanding that those behaviors can change in in a context of the way we humans use language we grab words and we stick them to us like um, glue and we become those words just like Mm. you become the word nesh because that's your name and you're the word nesh um, and you become really stuck and and that feels like nesh is no longer just four letters but it's actually it's got a whole lot of relations around that. Um, mm. And so we kind of get stuck on it. And it, it, I suppose that the changing part of Nesh might be the roles, for example. You know, Nesh might, might be a psychologist. Nesh is also a father. Nesh is a brother, a husband, and so on. And, and, and those things change too, you know, one day. Now, I worked as a psychologist, uh, yeah, and that right. might not be right. something. But 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 yeah. some things have a long time that they are part of you, but they still are changing. They're they're they're, yeah. they're 
they're never they're a, um, a permanency yeah they're always a part yeah. though yeah part of you not all of you um and yeah. if it's really interesting when you talk about names i like playing with people's names um because if you think about all of the um relations that come up with nesh you know all of the verbal relationships that you have and you talk about psychologist and father but you'll also have other images in your head of what you look like and what you sound like and all of those things and that really is so very different from if i had spoken to five-year-old nesh right mm. so different right and yet still you right? so um and that's a really good way to start seeing that this thing we call ourself actually changes quite a lot but we just kind of don't really see it you know it's hard for us to grab mm. hard for us to grab and that that changing self is is us too but there, there, there's almost like a consistency about it and there's a changing self to it as well and they're both the self view mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. How, how do younger persons go with un, understanding that, appreciating that? Because it's co quite philosophical in some sense. It's, you know, I mean, I, I, is, is it playing with the changes, noticing the changes, noticing the different, um, the differences in self over time, reflecting, taking different perspectives, you know, imagining a, uh, imagining a an older self potentially talking to a younger oh, self or what you might say to a younger self, what a younger self might say to an older self and so on? Yeah, you can do that. Um, you can do all of those things, but you don't actually really need to be that complex. Yeah, okay. Right? So, um, for example, often what we do is draw the DNA V shape on a piece of paper and we might fill in... Um, uh, aspects of each of those behaviors you know you might write in for the advisor some of the thoughts you have and some of the self-talk you have and for the noticer you might write in some of the behaviors some of the emotions that you notice inside your body or some of the parts some things about your body and what you're aware of in the discovery we might write down some behaviors that you engage in or some things that you do or some experiences that you try or ways in which you take risks or um, and in the values piece we might write down some of the things that you care about so um, if, if we had that piece of paper in front of us and we were looking and saying, okay, Nish, I've just done this for you, which part is you? Which part is you? Are you this little piece here where we just have written the advisor? Or are you this piece where we've written the noticer? Or are you this piece where we've written the discoverer? Or this piece where we've written the valuer? Which part is you? Mm. Well, it's the whole. The whole, right. So you're yeah. the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. And so yourself is all of this and sometimes you can only see a little tiny bit of this and think you feel like i am just this i'm not good enough statement or i'm not as smart as other people and you just see this one little piece and our job is to just kind of step back and see that it's all there um and that that all there even changes you know and so that's all we try to do is just step back and take a bigger perspective and see all the whole of you and understand that it changes and you can always add pieces in and by noticing that's the, the the work that you're talking about being able to notice it and and in some sense label it allows you to sit with it some more the the work that joe put together it, it kind of integrates in that it allows us to to sit with the with the whole rather than just see one piece or allow for 
those experiences to be there but not be the whole. Sure, it's the perspective of, um, of understanding that um, we change and being able to see that that perspective means that we change. And that's difficult for us humans because as soon as you add a label to something, it becomes fixed. It feels like it becomes fixed. It's just like if I had to say, well, from now on, we're going to call you Michael. You know, it's really hard to do that. Um, but if you did it long enough, you would be able to start to see yourself as Michael. You know, you'd be able to do that for long enough. And, and anybody who changed their name when they, for um, people who changed their name when they became partnered would know that it takes a while to get used to this different new name, but after a while it becomes part of you. So it's the same kind of thing. Is that some of the struggle that, that, that happens when, uh, and this doesn't just occur for, for, for younger persons, but um, when younger persons start to consider, look at, explore their, their gender, that they, they start to question or start to notice different feelings and, and they're not sure where those feelings fit or how they fit or how to even categorize, you know, how to put language to it sometimes is, is, is complicated these days. Yeah, that's a very complex challenge for young people and one that I'm, I'm, I'm pleased that many young people are now able to talk about openly because the challenges that they faced is difficult if it's a struggle inside you that you can't talk about. Um, uh, but you can see the challenge is we use language in a way that becomes fixed and rigid, like you are this, you are this gender. And then uh, trying to learn how to use the, to be, see yourself in a different way and to talk to people and have other people see you in a different way is really difficult. Wherever language is, as soon mm -hmm. as we start labelling things and calling things something, we become fixed. You actually see that in ACT. People learned a hexagonal model in ACT that's called the hexaflex. And it didn't take long before the hexaflex became ACT. But there's things sure. inside that there are things that are not that are essential to ACT that are not in the hexaflex, mm. such as doing a creative hopelessness piece for people who are stuck down. And that's right? a massive, that's a huge part of, 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 of ACT and willingness, you know, the understanding right. of, yeah. That's right. So it happens everywhere, you know, and you see it in the therapies as well, such as when you get trained as a CBT therapist, then that becomes the therapy you do. Or when you get trained as an ACT therapist, that becomes the therapy you do and the one you believe in. We do this every, we do it, we do it with everything. Um, we, we, language helps us define something and we become fixed and rigid. And, and what we're trying to do constantly is help young people know that and be able to be flexible with it and then to use their discoverer and their noticer and their values piece to use those to kind of test out how they want to be and to create to, where we see rigid narrowness we want flexibility and bigger repertoires if they help you live a life that you care about and do things that are important to you and it might be worth i know you've got a question i'll let you ask a question but there's a good an important values piece in here to talk about when you get to it let you speak. Let's take over. It's your podcast, so I should let you talk. <laughs> it just it just triggered in my mind. The, uh, you know, in the early days of anything, we we place language, and because of that language, we fixate. And whether we talk about it in terms of, you know, this this exploration around gender, or if we look at the early days of mental health, we categorize mental health in 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 what we call these days is diagnoses. You know, we give these kind of rigid ideas of what, what human beings are. And, and in both, both places, the moment we put a rigid 
language set around gender or mental health, we, we start causing tension, you know, and, and, and conflict in, in that space. And it's, it's almost like the infancy years are prone with that. And, and until we go out and mature a little bit or great, gain greater insight, we start to potentially describe this more rather than just giving a one-off name, you know, one-off, you know, a label, a set of, set of words. There's always much more depth and understanding and meaning to, to what any experience is. You know, I mean, depression comes in, in an infinite number of shapes and sizes and so does social anxiety and so does gender preferences. You know, they're all just different different ideas but we categorize it because of language is, is that kind of piece that 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 kind of binds it all together and i suppose functional analysis uh, it kind of helps to pull it apart as to what we might want to do mm. when we start labeling things and naming things and using language we become fixed and rigid about it now whether that is cultural or um and how much is cultural and how much is learned or um, just the, the, the way we've evolved to use language, I don't know. Mm. But we do know that we become fixed and rigid. And, and so our job is to try to help ourselves be as flexible as we can be. Now, there's some interesting research that I often talk about when I use a developmental act, um, the DNAB, that as people become older, they become more um, uh, Less, they become more fixed in their views and less likely to adopt an unfamiliar hypothesis. And that's Alice Gopnik's work. So Alice Gopnik does experimental studies. In, um, and some of the studies she's looked at is um, comparing ad adults, older adults with adolescents and younger people. And the older they are, the less likely they are to adopt an unfamiliar hypothesis, even if that unfamiliar hypothesis is consistent with the evidence. So even if the evidence supports it, they will stick with what they know. Yeah, yeah. What's interesting is as, as people age as well, their memory shrinks in terms of breadth, but it remains just as strong in terms of importance. So older people will hold the same number of items as younger persons when we tell them these are important items to remember, but they forget all the, or they have less less memory capacity for the things that have got less value, uh, which is quite quite fascinating. And that those two worlds might might also come together. So we just kind of fixate on on what we believe is being most important, but we hold them tighter. Mm. Yeah, you'll just say something about values, and 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 then you kind of uh, yeah. I think talking about being fixed and rigid and, and having labels for things and names for things um, and looking at the way we do developmental act versus the DNAV or act for development, let me say it like that, versus act for adults and values is an important thing to kind of think about. Um, so, you know, often when you're working with an adult, you'll ask them things like, you know, what's important to you? Um, how do you want to be? What, what you know, um, uh, what do you care about? What are the things that are the most important to you? Um, and right inside that, we're making an assumption that the person that we're there with, the adult that they're there with, will have had some experience in life in knowing what they care about and the kind of person they want to be. Um, and with young people, we don't make that assumption. So with young people, we don't see values as a part of you like an arm or a leg. We see values as something that we're essentially creating and we're creating it through our shared work. So we're getting them to use their, their D, N and A 
to test things and try things and then learn what they care about so that over time we're building up a sense of creating value. And so value, so the way that I think about it is values are not a thing. They're not a part of you. And especially if you're not an adolescent, they're not a part of you. They're behaviour that you develop over time and you develop it through trying things. So being in the Discover, for example, and trying something new. Um, and, um, and over time, you'll say, I care about this. So when lots of people do act with young people and they'll say the values piece is the hardest piece. Um, and, and, and I think the reason that people say that is because they approach it like adults, mm. assuming that the young person has their values formed like they have an arm and a leg, um, instead of thinking that this is a process of actually creating the value through our language, through our dialogue together, through our shared experiences together with the young person and through their experiences that we create. And then over time we say, ah, oh, so you care about that. That's they try and elicit it rather than actually say, let's explore it. Let's, let, let's wonder. Let's, let, let's be curious and see what might be of interest or you might even like and start from a liking space rather than necessarily, you know, having to have a big strong core value set or something. We, just, we can be a lot more uh, flexible with it. Well, it's not a thing. Yeah, it's not yeah, a part yeah. of you. But you see, we'd see that fixed and rigid language thing we do straight away. We make values a thing. <laughs> like it's a part of you. This is my values. Like it's a, you know, a and part mine. of you that you carry around. But it's actually not. It's a behaviour and that behaviour changes over time. And it's a behaviour of, I mean, ultimately, I suppose it's a behaviour of caring about things. But you, we have to find a way to, to shape that language of caring about things and knowing that it changes. And think back to your adolescence, Nesh. Uh, and all of the kind of things that you probably thought you cared about in your adolescence and how much it changed from 13 to 15 to 17. It's dramatic. Immensely, immensely. Yeah. Let right. alone into older age. As a matter of fact, I, I often see, and I'm, this is a pattern, not, not um, just in one group uh, at all, but you often see older persons who, you know, adults, middle age or or older who get to a milestone and they've either quite often if, if, if they have a little bit of security and, and comfort, particularly if someone makes, you know, a decent amount of money and, they, and, and, and they've been searching for that for a long period of time, they then reflect and go, I'm not even sure what my interests are or what it is that I like or whatever it might be. They've, they've kind of been chasing something without kind of giving it that much thought, you know, because society gives us, you know, that direction and it makes sense, you know, we've got to put food on the table and so on. But then there's almost a, for lack of a better word, um, a crisis. And, and, and it's not really a crisis. It's a moment of reflection and, and confusion and, and saying, you know, I haven't explored for a long time and I don't know where to start. Uh, and, and, and that's where the discoverer is the discoverer. Yeah. <laughs> the language. I love the, the, the language that, that DNAV kind of uses. I think it's, yeah, I know that it's obviously language that it's purpose, purposely, uh, written for younger persons, but I can just hear the application for, you know, all of us as, as well, because it describes what it is. You know, there's a discoverer in all of us. You know, there, there, there's a young person in all of us. You know, we, we're still young. You know, the, the, I don't know, it, it just resonates so, so, so beautifully. 
it's thank you thank you yes it's broadening and building bigger repertoires of behavior and um while you're there i'm going to just talk a little bit about the thing that i love the most that is building a repertoires of behavior in people that um um makes me pause and be overwhelmed with um just the the incredibleness of it and that is so one of the things that i do is something called mindful adventures and this is a bit of a plug but mindful adventures is a not-for-profit um professional development thing that i run so i don't make any money out of it zero um, but what we do is we take people to the himalaya professionals and we take them to the himalaya and we do we practice mindfulness in the context of walking um, and walking in the Himalayan mountains. And this is exactly what we're describing in terms of um, finding to see ways to see yourself differently and ways to, to open up our lives and change that rigidity. And so, uh, or change the, the narrowness that we've come to see ourselves in. And what I mean by that is I am so um, astounded and delighted at how often people come with us and then they come back and they say, this changed my life in ways that I would never have imagined. And they still, I just had someone email me yesterday who came with us five years ago. He said, I'm still, it's still changing my life. And, um, and I think what you see there is because we take people out of their context of their, um, their professional lives, you know, and they have different, they're different professionals. They're professionals interested in mindfulness. But because we take them out of the context of their professional lives and put them in a completely foreign context like the Himalaya, where um, everything is different, and then we ask them to look at mindfulness and to be mindful and to practice and to be, do that in a group um, so that we get a group effect of group people. Um, and when you do that, you, it's like the same as the thing that we do in ACT when we want people to take off the way they see the world and to see it differently. And so I think that's kind of what we try to do when we do ACT work with young people, or when we do ACT work with adults, and, and um, when we do things like Mindful Adventures, is getting people to see the world differently is incredible. And that's what changes lives. But you can't tell someone to see the world differently. You have to change their context. And let them see it. Mm. And when they do, life, the world changes. And so our challenge, I think, is getting people to see, to change their context, see things differently. Mm. And to invite them in to be curious and discover and examine and play with these ideas without such seriousness as well and to... to appreciate and look at and wonder. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. And to know that the human mind is always going to narrow it down and make it fixed and call it a thing and label yes. it and, and that that's not a bad thing. Mm, that's, that's useful. Okay too. Mm. But it's only useful when it's useful. And our job is to know when it's useful and when it's not. And that's a, I like None of us are ever in that place. We've got to do that every day of our lives. Louise, I know a lot of people are going to want to uh, find out more about you, your, the training that you do. You know, where can they come and you know, see you, find out more, 
tell us about your books. I know that uh, we, we, we very briefly touched on it before, but uh, here, here's your moment to, to have a bit of a plug. Um, and, and <laughs> I've plugged all the way through. <laughs> this is important because so many of our listeners, you know, are, are listening because they want to know more. They want to know, know more about what, it's, what it is to be human, how to be human, how to gra- grab life and, and, you know, enrich it more be be more in life and and i think think the work that you do you know speaks to that so you know the, the, this is an opportunity for, for people to find out more about you know your books your work some uh some of your work you, you know your 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 work in nepal and, and and also um you know workshops so i'll hand it over to you well, that's really easy. So if you want to find out some more about this, the, anything that I do, it's at my website, which is louisehayes.com.au. So everything's on there, louisehayes.com.au. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about, we've got a, Joseph Cherokee and I have spent the last two years working on a new book that we're really excited about. It won't come out until the middle to, of next year, middle of 2020. Um, but it's called Your Life, Your Way. And it is by far the best thing we've done. And um, the reason I say that is it is written for young people and it, we have worked so hard to try to find a way to get, um, we're constantly trying to find a way to communicate to young people, for young people. There has never been a time when young people need this more. Um, and we need to help them. We need to all be advocates for youth right now. It's an important pace. So um, we so that's something that I think is um, important for all of us to to look at. And so if you want to find out some more about workshops or that book coming or things, that's on our louisehayes.com.au. And if you want to find out about Mindful Adventures, that's on there too. Um, Louise, I'm going to tie you up now, uh, just because you mentioned that. Are you happy to come back uh, for another episode to talk about your life your way? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Oh, no, hang on. Do I want to come and talk about the new book we've got coming? Absolutely. No, that would be fan. That would be fantastic. Louise, I can't, I can't thank you enough for, for, for your, for your work, for coming on today. You're an incredible human being and, and, you know, I, I'm blessed to have, you know, come to, to your training as well and, and, you know, to, to, to do our work together you know, I'm excited in the, in the years to come, particularly with, you know, to hear more about your work with young people because I think it's, you know, second to none. Uh, so thanks again. And, um, yeah, really looking forward to speaking again. Thanks for having me on, Nesh. And let me just add, we are all incredible human beings. <laughs> and that's a really important part of it. But thank you for that. That's been a pleasure to talk to you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review subscribe, share it via social media, and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.